Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the TFA EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. We're sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season, created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel. Also on the pod is Dre Fortune, a professional creative attacking midfielder from North Carolina FC. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as The Professor. Bella Chow. During week seven, we had an abnormal week in that everything went, well, kind of normal. Uh, English clubs did well in Europe this last week. They went five and one, scoring 17 goals and only one goal given up. Tottenham was the outside man uh, with respect to the winners. And also on the weekend, five out of the big six won with the lone exception of relegation threatened Manchester United. Today we're going to talk a bit about the Champions League and then we're going to review the Arsenal Man United and other matches that caught our attention this weekend. We'll also preview Man United Everton, Man City, Liverpool, but before we do that we'll talk a little bit about the upcoming Liverpool-Atalanta match in the Champions League. Harshel, why don't we go ahead and get started with that match that you were most interested in talking about, which is the Man United and Arsenal game. Help us unpack that. Yeah, and it's um, so with respect to that game, I think it's also important to look at the previous United game during the week, which was against RB Leipzig in the Champions League. And it's interesting that United used the same formation in both games, at least from the start, which was... Uh, Solskjaer basically put out midfield diamond and it worked quite differently in both games. Obviously, United won 5-0 uh, during the midweek and lost 1-0 um, on the weekend against Arsenal. And there were a few sort of differences in the way it was used and also differences in how the opposition played it. So against Leipzig, for example, in the, f the, the midfield that started was Nemanja Matic holding. You had Pogba and Fred as the two sort of flankers in that diamond and uh, Donny van der Beek actually started at the tip of the diamond with uh, Bruno Fernandes on the bench. And what was interesting about that is in the first half, actually Leipzig had a lot of the ball, but they didn't really penetrate or they couldn't penetrate because what happens is when you play a diamond is you naturally create, uh, uh, it's, it's, it naturally lends itself to uh, not allowing the opposition to be able to pass through the center. And United did that really well. They, con they contracted the space centrally. So Leipzig were forced to play the ball out wide. They couldn't really get it into those dangerous central areas, which they can do, but they couldn't do that. And uh, Pogba had a really good game. He set up the goal, the opening goal for Greenwood with a brilliant pass, which is what he was uh, sort of in the squad to do, to make those kind of passes. And then I thought Solskjaer got his substitutions absolutely spot on. He brought Fernandez, um, Rashford and a, a, a bunch of others on in the second half towards the sort of hour mark and then they were just able to tear Leipzig apart on the counter-attack as they pushed forward. So that's worked out really well in that game but in the weekend game against Arsenal, he changed things around. Scott McTominay came in instead of Matic and Fernandez came in instead of uh, Van de Beek and also another important change was the fact that Martial was suspended for the Premier League 
So although Anthony Martial and Rashford started up front against Leipzig, it was Greenwood and Rashford who started up front against Arsenal. And that was important because, again, in a midfield diamond, when you're playing with two strikers, you need to be able to have those strikers hold up the ball because you don't really have too much offensive threat going down the wings because you don't have wide players. Your, your fullbacks need to provide the width. So while they get up the pitch, when there's a counter-attack or when you get the ball, your strikers need to be able to hold up the ball. And neither Greenwood nor Ashford are that good at doing that. And Martial is actually quite good. He did that really well against Leipzig. So whenever United were able to, on the few occasions, get away from the Arsenal press, they weren't able to hold up the ball. And at the same time, Arsenal pressed really well. They were, they, they, they'd done their homework. They targeted, uh, they sort of shut off the passing lanes to Pogba and uh, Fred. So the centre-backs were forced to pass it to McTominay and then he's not the best guy on the ball. So he either gave the ball away or had to play a safe pass back because the other passing options were blocked off. And that kept happening throughout the first half. So I thought a bit of the selection that uh, Solskjaer did was wrong. I thought he should have played McTominay as a deeper midfielder rather than Fred uh, and yeah, Pogba obviously made the mistake and gave the penalty away. So it wasn't a, cata- a catastrophic performance because I do- honestly don't remember Arsenal sort of threatening the United goal too much uh, other than that uh, penalty appeal. But at the same time, United didn't threaten Arsenal too much either. So it's just so, a case of one step forward, one step back for United at the moment. And this was just another example. Dre, what was your take on, on the match? I think the last point that Harshaw made was uh, pretty important just in terms of there were there wasn't really much threat from both sides. I think it was just a neutral game, an even game. Um, Arsenal seemed more, you know, comfortable and more confident in what they were doing. Uh, they, you know, they moved the ball pretty well. And they, you know, they advanced the ball pretty well. And then as they got to the final third, I think it slowed down a little bit in terms of trying to create chances at goal. But um, I think in the end, you know, uh, it's just, I think it's a, it's a mistake by Pogba. Just a, you know, he shut off a little bit mentally there and then ends up not tracking and gives away a penalty. And, that's really all that needed uh, to, to make the difference in the game. And um, man, you'll probably feel a little bit hard done by, but I think I think Arsenal, with the way that they played through the complete 90 minutes, I think they deserve to get three points from the game. Arshel, you know, there was a fair bit of talk in the analytics Twitterverse about the diamond versus kind of the width of Arsenal uh, in the midfield. Were there any things that we could really take away or do you feel that it was fairly stalemated or what's what's your take on that? No, that was an important factor in that game because as you said, I mean, the, when you play a diamond, you naturally give up width because you, all your four midfielders are in the center yeah. and with your fullbacks who are the guys who need to provide width. And Arsenal have played a hybrid system sort of almost all throughout the season and even towards the end of last season where it's a back three and a back four, depending on what phase of play is going on. So, because Kieran Tierney can slot in as the third centre-back when needed, but he can then go out and play as the as the full-back with whoever's on the left side, whether it's Bukayo Saka or Ainsley Maitland-Niles, playing as the wing-back as required. So, because they've got that flexibility, they can sort of move it around during the game. And they did that really well here because uh, they were able to get down the flanks and stretch United, which Leipzig didn't do. I mean, that was... The key difference, I think, in between in between those two games, and also I thought Thomas Partey was really good for Arsenal. He 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 looks like a really good complete midfielder. And again, those who who have seen him in, um, for Atletico over the last few years in La Liga will know that he's not a typical defensive midfielder. I mean, he, it's, he's a really good passer of the ball. Sure. He can hold up 
play and he did all of that so united were able to uh, sorry arsenal were able to dominate in midfield in that sense but at the same time get down the flanks and that's that's the problem with the diamond that you, I got you. you end up giving up space on the flanks so dre were there any outstanding players in particular on the attacking side that you you'd give some high marks for i thought it was really encouraging to see thomas partain just the he's known for his defensive as arshaw said but the way that he's able to pick passes forward and and bring guys involved to the to the play i really enjoy that i mean abamyang hadn't scored a premier league goal in in a while so i'm you know happy to see him do that i've always enjoyed watching william play i think he's very you know creative and will help you create some stuff so i think arsenal's just starting to put it all together and then um you know finally starting to connect the pieces and and hopefully you know they're still missing that little bit of creativity i think in the final third at times so hopefully they're able to you know get that part together but i mean for me the just outstanding part uh, was was thomas in in his debut yeah i think my my take on the match is frankly it wasn't a very entertaining game to watch um and this often happens when you get the big 6 and i keep wanting to believe that's not the case but uh, i i i am wrong again and again on it where i have to believe that it is I think the kind of the key takeaway that I would get from that is that uh Arsenal had 48 goals scored against them last year uh which would put them around 8th or 9th uh which is unsurprising since they finished 8th and whatever they've done this semester I mean this season they're at a a, a season leading 7th uh goals scored against them and that's a that's a pretty dramatic improvement and uh you know I think I I must admit I've seen their their attacking or their sorry their starting defensive line at the beginning of the season I thought oh we're going to get more of the same but uh, I just think that as as players both new players as well as folks that have been around for a little bit um are giving being given their opportunities um it's just really nice to see that piece So I I kind of see that the Arteta plan coming together. I kind of if if I blur my eyes a little bit or squint, I sort of kind of see that happening at Manchester United. Um in defense of Ole, you know, his record right now at Manchester United is more or less comparable to Klopp's first 100 games at Liverpool. Um so uh they uh Manu has spent twice as much money in that time period but I think that has more to do with the inflation of players more than anything so um you know I, I am I'm still not ready to join the naysayers of Arteta and and Ole just because we're seven games into it and Aubameyang if once he gets back to form I think the engine really starts to rev up I really like seeing some uh what Lacassette was able to do. I I think he had some some really nice individual play um which I'm hoping that he reminds Arteta that he is he's relevant um in in Arteta's scheme. Um so I guess those are what my reflections. Arshel any any more thoughts on that? Just a couple of sort of analytics focus things if you like. I mean, you said that Arsenal are leading the league in terms of goals conceded. They've conceded 7, but if you look at expected goals before the weekend we i don't have stats up for this weekend but if you look at expected goals conceded for uh, up to this weekend's games they were i think sixth worst they they conceded um, an xg total of about 1.2 goals per game mm-hmm. whereas they'd actually conceded 1.17 goals a game so they 
outperforming XG by a little bit in terms of expected goals, but not by too much. It's just that some of the other teams are actually doing a lot worse in terms of um, like even Man United, for example. They've they've conceded 1.6 goals per game, and that's again before this weekend. Whereas in terms of XG, they're actually at 1.28. Uh, mm. One of the biggest examples of that is Brighton. Brighton have conceded 0.6 XG per 90 this season, and they've actually conceded more than twice the number of goals. They've conceded 1.33 goals per game, and that's before this weekend's loss to uh, Spurs. So, I mean, Arsenal have got a lot right in terms of how they've gone about the season and how they're building into, uh, under Arteta, but I think their defense is still can be got at. Uh, Gabriel is a really good buy. He's done really well. but i think the rest of the defense is still a bit of a mess arteta still doesn't know who he wants to play he's had a lot of injuries even though they have like seven or eight center backs i think four of them are out injured right now or something like that so that that side of things is still a little bit up in the air for me for arsenal well, at least i i agree with you i think the most interesting statistic that i heard over the weekend is that liverpool is leading the league with most goals given up uh, i think the numbers around 17 or so um or sorry 15 and they're also number 1 in the league go figure um but uh, i guess you get seven goals scored on you in one game it can really skew the stats yeah. um well good well what do we go ahead and start turning our attention to some of the other matches um manchester united uh 1-1-0 fairly comfortably uh i thought i think you mean man city there i'm sorry man city uh, not to be confused with their cross time r- rivals um Dre any thoughts about them and how they're f- they're getting along even without some some key players? Yeah, over the years uh we've seen Pep you know have to adjust uh for different reasons and he he's always quite comfortable doing that and I think this is just another another time. I mean, I think they've they've been through patches like this before where they've had to play without both Aguero and Jesus and uh you know, they find a way to manage and I think that's just, you know, another case of it. Obviously, they're not going to be as clinical and they're not going to have that same kind of strikers in sync in front of the goal but I mean you know they they're, they're going to still continue to play the way that they play and create chances and you know they they granted it's only 1-0 they they're happy with three points again and they're going to keep moving forward. Harshell, do you think that they're going to go after another striker given these sort of injuries um though it seems like both are due back within the next 7 or 8 days. I don't think they're going to do that. I mean not in january because it's very difficult to get value in january they might do that next year cuz i don't think aguero has renewed his contract yet and it's up at the end of this season so mm-hmm. i mean they might just need to go into to replace aguero if nothing else mm-hmm. but yeah i obviously uh, you any team which misses out on aguero and jesus will suffer and they have but it's also interesting to see again if you look at some of the deeper numbers and analytics stuff uh city are what 10th i think also in the league for expected goals which they've created so they they're creating at uh, or they're running at an xg of about 1.1 per 90 and this is obviously again before this weekend's games they've and they've actually outscored that they've they've scored 1.4 ga- games the goal uh, sorry goals a game so they even they, they're not really creating too much but they're outscoring that and that again is down to maybe a few long range shots going in which have low xg value so what i think pep will be concerned about is the fact that i mean they're not creating the chances it's one thing to create the chances and then you don't have your aguero or your jesus to take those chances that that i can understand but at this moment in time the, it's the creativity that's missing which you normally associate with uh, a pep guardiola team and that's i think what will be worrying for pep 
I got you. Well, let's turn our attention to what were then league leaders, um, Everton. Uh, Everton had a, a banana slip with Newcastle, but if, if you really understood what the injury report was for Everton, in some ways it wasn't a terrible surprise given the number of injuries and suspensions. Do uh, you want to help, unpack, help us unpack that, Harshal? Yeah, uh, obviously they didn't have Richarlison, they didn't have Lucas Dina at left back. Uh, James was out of this game and uh, Ancelotti chose to drop Jordan Pickford for this game and bring in Robin Olsen who is on loan from Roma at Everton this season in goal. So they did have obviously, and again, captain and right back Seamus Coleman was unavailable as well. So yeah, a lot of key absentees who will make any team weak again. But I thought, I, I, I really didn't understand the team that Ancelotti put out at the weekend because it was, he had, I think, five central midfielders who started the game and Tom McAlbert were in up front. So you had, I think it was Dukure, Gomez, uh, Sigurdsson, Allen and uh, I'm forgetting someone and Fabian nope. Delph, all five of them. Yeah, all five of them started in midfield. So and it it was quite predictable in terms of what panned out because they had absolutely no width. It was the fullbacks who had to keep pushing on, provide width. But all the other guys are just playing in the center and there's nobody making runs beyond uh, Calvert-Lewin or supporting him as well. Because again, the central midfielders, they're not, it's not their natural tendency to do that. So it was just, they were just crowded out very easily. And yes, Calvert-Lewin did score and um, they did try and, I mean, it did get close for a while, but then they conceded again. So I thought Ancelotti sort of shot himself in the foot a little bit with that selection. He has the players. I mean, he has Alex Iwobi, he has Bernard. He has a youngster called Anthony Gordon, who's a winger who he could have started instead. So, I mean, it, it, it their sort of high-flying start that they had has come down to earth a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how they go about the next few weeks. Interesting. Dre, any thoughts on, on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I I don't think anybody really expected for Everton to continue on the path that they were on. I think they were always going to come down at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one of the key things, and obviously Ancelotti spoke out and said that, you know, Pickford will start the next game. But I think, I think that's huge because, I mean, especially in this day and age, goalkeepers don't really rest like that. I mean, it's, Usually you'll have a goalkeeper for, you know, the league per se. And then when you have a few league cup games or whatever, you, you'll switch them out. Um, so I, I think, I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on and, and, and kind of watch out for. We've seen Pickford make a few mistakes already this season. And, um, I don't think it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if he was replaced permanently coming up shortly. Interesting. Well, I think, um, I am going to, I think Ancelotti's probably going to keep his word, uh, and Pickford's going to play. My sense is as emotional as Pickford plays, he, he could have an outstanding game against Man, Man United. But, you know, I, I must say I'm, I am absolutely marvel at his distribution. Like he is just, for, for as questionable he is at times at his decision-making, the polar opposite is his ability to distribute. And I think that's why Ancelotti really wants him to hang in there uh, and hope that somehow he gets a little more mature in his decision-making. Um, but time will tell on that. Uh, so let's turn our, our attention to some of the other um, league leaders, Aston Villa. Um, you know, they had a really surprising first half against Southampton. Um, I don't know if we need to go, go into all the details, but Harshel, 
kind of give us the the high notes of, of that match. Yeah, Southampton sort of screamed into a 4-0 lead sort of midway through the second half. They scored three goals in the first half. Uh, two fantastic free kicks by James Ward-Prowse, who's, I mean, for guys who've not seen him take a free kick, he, he reminds me of David Beckham in terms of the whip and the uh, the ability he has to get the ball up over the wall and back down again, while also being able to curl it and get that whip. So he's he's become a really good set piece specialist. He scored two goal, direct free kicks and got an assist from a corner, from which I think it was Yannick Westergaard who scored uh, the first goal for Southampton. So uh, that sort of I, I, and I, I'll be honest, I sort of switched off the game at four 0 because I was like, yeah, this is done and dusted. And then I came come back and see that Villa put up a fight, scored three goals, although, I mean, two of them came in stoppage time. I think Jack Grealish scored the third goal in the 97th minute. So, uh, it was quite a fight back and obviously wasn't enough. But I think uh, what this shows is that, I mean, Villa do have a lot of fighting spirit that's been instilled in them. And I think that's a result of the fact that they came so close to relegation last year. But they're a tight-knit group under Dean Smith. He's done a good job there in terms of fostering that sort of uh, spirit in the dressing room. And they've bought really well this summer as well. They've got some really good players in, which we've spoken about earlier. Ollie Watkins, brilliant championship-level striker who should do well in the Premier League. Matty Cash, another brilliant right-back championship-level young player who should do well uh, once he sort of gets used to the Premier League. Uh, Bertrand Traore came in from a Champions League club in Olympic Lyon. Ross Barkley came in on loan from Chelsea. So, uh, they've, they've got some good players in. Dean Smith has sort of put a good work culture in there, a good work ethic in there. And... They're playing some good football as well. It's not just Jack Grealish carrying the load offensively. They've got a lot, a bunch of other players who can share that. So, I, I don't expect Villa to uh, be in the relegation places or in the relegation battle. They should be about mid-table or lower mid-table, in my opinion. And let's see how it goes on from you know in the next few weeks. Dre, any any quick notes on the Tottenham Brighton match? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I thought obviously the. The big thing about that was was the penalty, um, and you know when it, when I think about a striker kind of backing into a center back, for example, on like a goal kick or something like that, usually when the center back's going up to challenge, uh, he'll end up getting that free kick. So I thought it was interesting that it went the other way in this in this situation. Um, but obviously, you know, there's nothing you can do about that, and just Tottenham obviously are, are you know going to be happy to keep fighting and, and and take three points out of it, and Brighton's going to feel a little bit hard done by, but I guess that's just part of the Premier League. I got you. Good. Um, Harshal, how about your take on the Liverpool-West Ham game? What's a quick quick notes on that? West Ham have been really good in the last few weeks. They've had a lot of tough games, but they've come through all of them quite well. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect that from them. Uh, I didn't expect that David Moyes would be able to get that out of them. But that back five that they play with the midfield in front of uh, that back five, which is really compact and denies any space between the lines and sort of forces teams to go out wide. They did that to Man City. Uh, They did that, honestly, they did that to Liverpool as well. Liverpool didn't really create too many chances. And uh, I wouldn't say that the penalty was lucky. A lot of people on social media or even otherwise, you know, on Match of the Day or whatever on the BBC have insinuated that Mohamed Salah dived. I don't think he dived. It was a clear penalty uh, in terms of how uh, Masuaku it was who tripped him. So, it's not luck, you know. It, it, Salah is such a dangerous player in the box that players, the, the, his gravity in that sense is such that players will get drawn to him and they will 
try to get the ball off him, which ends up, you know, at times leading to such fouls. So Liverpool uh, didn't get lucky, but it showed their bench strength as well because they were able to get Shakiri and Jota on. Shakiri played that pass through for Jota to score. Who's I mean, Jota? Jota scored in two successive home games now for Liverpool. He's had an impact. The guy, uh, he he came in from Wolves, and everybody thought that he would be on the bench and he would be sort of like an impact player. But he's had a much bigger impact than people would have thought. And Klopp himself has said this. He said this after the West Ham game that he's done. He's uh, he's done. He's had a lot uh, more of an impact than I thought he would. People had forgotten about Jordan Shakiri, but he's shown that you know he still has it in his locker to be able to pull out game-changing moments like that. And that showed the strength of the Liverpool bench. So. Even though you know they don't have Van Dijk, they don't have Fabinho for a little while. It was you know Nathaniel, Nathaniel Phillips, who's a 23-year-old, making his debut at centre back, but he was man of the match. So again, you know, Klopp is able to find solutions within his squad, and Liverpool are back on top of the table. So it was a difficult game. West Ham made it difficult, and I think they will make it difficult for a lot of teams if they keep playing this way. But it just, I mean, Liverpool are finding a way to win, and that that's. Uh, I think that shows that they could probably still be the team to beat this year. Right, Dre. Any any, any notes on that match? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I thought after watching the majority of the first half, I thought the game was there for West Ham to win. Um, I think they actually. I, I I wouldn't say it was lucky. I think I think it's just. Um, I think Masuaku made 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 a, a massive error in trying to one even tackle to begin with with Salah facing away from the goal. Um, and you know he, he's between him and the guard. I don't see any reason for him to to put in the tackle that he did. So I, I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot with that. And then, I mean, over the course of the of the second half, I think the quality just shown through. As, as Harshal said, I mean, Shakiri that's that's his second involvement in the week. I mean, he had a, another amazing reverse pass um, midweek in Champions League, a one-two with yeah. Alexander Arnold that led to a goal. And I mean, this one this one almost got me out of my seat. I was I was really excited when I saw that pass. So uh, yeah, I mean, over over the course of the game, Liverpool's quality shown through, and, and they end up winning. Well, they're back in their usual spot, uh, which is top of the league, uh, and um, you know, time, time will tell. I, I uh, kind of they're, they're going to have a, a really challenging next week or two, uh, playing against Man City, playing against Atalanta two times uh, in the next month. Uh, so they're they're going to have their hands full. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of see if they're still at the top of the league in the, in the next week or two. Um, all right. Well, with that, why don't we go ahead and transition to that Liverpool Atalanta um, preview, uh, which is on Tuesday, I believe. Arshel, help us unpack that. This could be again a really exciting game because I'll I'll put it this way: Atalanta are a lot like Leeds in the sense that they're fresh attacking side for fans of the Premier League who maybe haven't really seen too much of Atlanta over the last year or so. They're a really innovative attacking side and a lot like Leeds where they push a lot of numbers forward. And that's led to, I mean, you just need to go and look at some of the score lines that Atlanta games had from last season. They've, and the number of times they've put four, five, six goals past teams, but at the same time, they've also conceded two, three, even four goals, you know, in certain games. So you're always going to get a lot of attacking intent from Atlanta. And it's interesting if you watch them, they, they set up in a way where they look to create diamonds on both side of on both sides of the pitch. So it's only sort of this they play a back three, so it's only the central center half and the center forward who are sort of free in that sense. The other guys are always looking to set up set themselves up in diamonds 
towards the side of the pitch so they can play passing patterns and pull the ball uh push the ball up up the field and sort of progress the ball so liverpool will have the hands sort of full cuz atlanta can definitely play past a high press liverpool even though liverpool will press high atlanta have the quality and the positional rotation you know that i mean i forget which game it was but i think i think it was atlanta's last game in the champions league where there was a there was a passage of play where the two central midfielders dropped in and became the center halves and the center halves were up the field you know and the goalkeeper had the ball and he played it out to the center midfielders who were now playing as the center backs so that sort of positional rotation which is again something similar to what leeds do sheffield united do to an extent is what you're going to see from atlanta so it'll be a fun game i think liverpool obviously don't have uh van dijk uh, fabinho they're not going to have nat phillips as well who as i said was man of the match because he's not part of the champions league squad because they didn't expect that they'll need him so i don't know who's going to play center back unless matip is fit who's going to partner joe gomez so that's going to be interesting to see who they who they put in there right But yeah it'll be an interesting and i think it's going to be a really exciting game dre what's your take um yeah i i i'm expecting lots of goals in this one to be honest i think i think this has um the potential to have a lot of you know counter attacking play um cuz both both teams have such explosive attacking groups and especially you know with Liverpool struggling at the back in terms of who's going to play I, i think i think we could you know see a goal fest here and i i love i mean we all want to see it but yeah i i think i think this game has goals all over it yeah i think my my take on it is is that um i think the Liverpool Ajax game had uh had me really excited and this goes to the next level I just wonder if the results are going to be similar to the Ajax Liverpool game which was wide open but maybe not a lot of goals. Um one thing that's really fascinating is that uh you know Liverpool leads the English Premier League in most goals conceded and um Atalanta is uh in the top 6 or 7 of most goals conceded in 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 Serie A. So one could make the argument that but that both defenses are a bit suspect but i think that simplifies things a bit too much so um that is going to be something that i'm going to keep an eye for particularly on talanta's defense because we kind of get i've seen liverpool it's one match right that's the anomaly while is it atalanta's been pretty consistently in, in scored upon i am struck by in general how teams um many of the teams in Champions League have done well during the week and have done poorly in their home leagues and Liverpool is an exception to that um Man City well actually Man City is a perfect example of that so it it'll be interesting to see how how things play out but i imagine we can guarantee it's going to be open whether it's going to be a goal fest or an Ajax Liverpool part 2 uh i guess time will tell um so let's turn our attention back to the um the upcoming uh Premier League uh matches uh there's going to be a couple of big games uh, one of which is Man United Everton Harshell what are the matchups going to be like that and and any hope for some of the Everton fans on in terms of players coming back I think Hamez is going to be fit uh I think if I remember correctly Richarlison's ban should be done so I think he'll return I could be mistaken because I mean they had Richarlison and Lucas Lucadinho sent off in successive games so i don't remember exactly who got sent off when but i think one of the two either lucadinho or richarlison should be available uh for that game hamez definitely should be back so that should 
obviously bolster their chances. Uh, from a United point of view, Anthony Martial will be back domestically. So again, I expect to see him play. And it's a curious thing that United still haven't won a game at home in the league this year, uh, this season. They've not won. I think it, going back to the end of last season, it's now seven home league games where they haven't won a game at home, which is a stunning stat. You know, they've lost three games at home this season already to Crystal Palace, uh, uh, Spurs and now Arsenal. So this obviously is away from home. So I'm hoping that that it's I'm not sure what the issue is as such, but it could be a game where United might just have a bit of an edge if especially if uh, Everton don't get there, you know, all or most of those guys who are out back. If they do, then it could be a much closer game, I think. Uh, Dre, what's your take on that matchup? I think we're looking at, you know, two teams who are looking to turn things around. Um, Everton's lost the last two, I believe. Uh, Man, you obviously just lost to Arsenal. So, that, you know, they're both going to be looking to, to kind of bounce back from that. I think I think the middle of the field is going to be really important. Um, Man, you've obviously experimented with the diamond in the middle, trying to fit, you know, certain players in. And obviously Everton's midfield, I think, is their strongest part um, uh, this year. So I think the, the middle of the field is going to be very interesting. I think whoever wins that is probably going to, going to win the game. Um, I hope Everton wins, but I'm not going to speak too much on that. <laughs> what? G- give me a prediction, a score prediction. Um, honestly, I'd, I'd probably, I I'd guess maybe maybe 2-1 Everton. Okay. How about yourself, Harshel? I'd go 2-1 the other way to United. Okay. I'm going to side with Harshel, 2-1 Man United, largely because uh, Rodriguez is a is iffy on plane and and Gomez is also iffy on plane. Um, I just wonder if they're going to be able to uh, to uh, really co- contribute. And with Richardson out and Dinge out, uh, I just wonder if, if if the cupboard's a little bit too threadbare uh, for the quality of of Man United. Um, so let's go ahead and and turn our attention to um, the next uh, game of of note is going to be the Man City Liverpool game. Um, Harshal, what, what's your take on that? I think the big thing here is if Sergio Aguero is going to be available or not, because based on whatever news reports have come out, and not news reports exactly, I mean what Pep said in his last press conference, that Aguero could be fit for the game against Liverpool. And if he comes in, um, obviously he may not be completely match fit, but he did play a, two or three games before getting injured again. So it might not be a case of him being completely rusty. And obviously, if Aguero adds a completely different dimension to the attack and it'll allow Raheem Sterling to go back to the left where he's most comfortable. You know, he's been playing as a striker when they haven't had Aguero and Jesus. So that again allows other players to play in more natural positions. So it'll, again, City and Liverpool, I think their games over the last couple of seasons have been extremely entertaining. Both teams going at it. And I expect to see more of the same. So... Although, I mean, I mean, again, it depends on Liverpool and how much is taken out of them during the, by the midweek game against Atalanta and whether they're able to get those same levels of energy up uh, against Liverpool. Uh, because I don't think Klopp will be able to rotate as he did in the midweek. You know, he, he rested Salah, Mane and Firmino in that game. He took Henderson off at halftime and brought Wijnaldum on at halftime in the uh, midweek Champions League game against Midtjylland. I don't think he can do that against Atalanta. So, it... it could come down a little bit to energy, but other than that, tactically, I'm not saying anything about what Pep could come up with because he surprised everyone uh, a few times already this season. So 
we know what liverpool are going to line up like i don't know what city are going to do do to be very honest uh but yeah i think it'll it'll be an interesting and open game how about you dre yeah um if i've learned anything over the last two seasons with this matchup it, it's impossible to predict you can't really you don't really know what's going to happen so um i i think the only hope is that it's just an, an entertaining game hopefully you know you get a goal back so to add to that man city team um when you look midweek as harshaw said liverpool's probably got a, a tougher well not probably they have a tougher matchup man city's at home to olympiacos so um you'd imagine they might be able to get you know a little bit more rest from that going into the weekend but uh i mean the hope is that it's just an entertaining kind of free flowing game both ways and and uh kind of just see what happens which is no prediction for me <laughs> you got to I knew you're going to ask that um i think i think maybe liverpool wins this one which is good maybe maybe 2-0 2-0 about mm-hmm. you harshaw i i really don't know i genuinely do not know i mean if i had to just put out a score top of my head says 2-1 to city but and that's just because of how liverpool don't have like van dijk and fabinho but i mean with this game as jay said you really can't tell with this game yeah my gut tells me 3-1 um liverpool uh just because i really feel like man city desperately needs their strikers um i think they're good for one or two goals um with their current configuration but uh this may be one of those where top 16 plays top 6 and they neutralize each other and it, hopefully it's not a 0-0 affair so i'll say 3-1 liverpool or 0-0 um uh would be my my second most probable outcome um any other um thoughts harshell in terms of games to cover in terms of previewing um for next weekend or those seem to be the ones that immediately come to mind yeah um so i mean chelsea have a relatively easy game to play against sheffield united and that's uh, it's it's a big change from last season where obviously sheffield united were the surprise of the season last year and they were a really difficult team to play against they've not had that this season and i think they're in serious trouble now you know 6 7 games in they're, they're still struggling to pick up a win so chelsea should win that quite easily but what i found interesting from chelsea over the last over you know the midweek game in the champions league and this game was that lampard has moved away from a 4231 he's gone to a 433 and i think that that's the formation that actually suits these chelsea players a lot more than the 4231 he was trying and uh in he they played burnley at the weekend they won 3-0 but if you saw the team that was a really attack minded team chris james started at right back kante ingolo kante was the sole sort of defensive holding midfielder because you had mason mount and kai havertz playing as the two center midfielders and then you had timo werner uh uh Tammy Abraham and uh, uh Hakim Ziyech playing up top as the front three. Pulisic was going to start but he got injured in the warm up so Werner came in on the left instead but that's a really attacking lineup and I'm not saying that I mean they he could potentially play the same team against Sheffield United. They do have a tough game against Rennes in the Champions League in the weekend but he's got the numbers and he's got the players now to rotate but it was interesting for me to see that sort of lampard moved away from the 4231 to a 433 and that worked that's worked in the last two games in uh, obviously one being in the champions league and then in the weekend at the premier league so let's see if he keeps uh, you know sticks with that because it seems to be working hey let me ask you a question it seems like pulisic has been injured quite a bit uh when at chelsea i mean do you have any thoughts on that and even the types of injuries he, he he's getting i mean is this just a bad spell or is this 
I, I hate to use the term injury prone, but what 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 are your take on Pulisic? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it could just be a bad spell. I mean, I think often we see like when players do get injured, depending on the type of injury. Obviously, most most of the time it's like muscle injuries. Um, they tend to be a little more susceptible to to other kind of injuries shortly after. Um, so, you know, I think it's just unfortunate. I think, you know, obviously we want to see him back healthy and, and see him back playing again. And it, it may take a little bit more management, a little bit, you know, may have to hold off an extra week or so that, um, when, when he comes back to just kind of make sure everything's a hundred percent. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't chalk it up to anything other than just maybe just a bad spell. Well, let's hope you're right. You know, the, the, as, as you know, well, sometimes you're, you're, you're out for a week or two. And then all of a sudden that spot you thought you had is a lot trickier than, uh, than what you thought you had. Um, speaking of which, you know, last time we chatted, we talked about the evolution of the, the center attacking midfielder. I thought we could maybe explore a little bit more on just of the big six center attacking midfielders that remain, right? Or, help us unpack the key players in that role and, and kind of how they're playing a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, to start, I mean, I, after, after our last discussion, actually, I saw Hamas Rodriguez kind of made a video where he was talking about the number 10 position and how, when he was younger, everybody wanted to play there. And that was, you know, the, the prize position. And now nobody wants to play it because most managers kind of leave out a number 10 in their system or, um, you know, it just doesn't exist in the, in the same way. So when you, you know, look across the top six, I think there are all different types of number 10s, if you will, and just in terms of how they've adapted. So you've got Olza, for example, who is, I think, the classic number 10, and he's not playing. You have a guy like De Bruyne who's adapted a little bit and can play more withdrawn as a number eight. Um, you have a player like Hamas who's now playing out wide and kind of finding his spots. And then, you know, with Manu, for example, there's still Bruno Fernandez, who's actually playing as a, in the number 10 role. So, um, the, the position is kind of faded off a little bit, but players have to adapt. And I think we see all different types of players, you know, adapting in different ways and some for the better, some for the worse. How do you see your, do you see your, the way you play the position adapt or what, what, are there additional skills one needs to think about more or, or different ways of, of angles of attack? How does that work for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me personally, I think, I think I've kind of become more of a withdrawn player in terms of like more of a number eight role. Um, I've been able to kind of, you know, adjust my game towards that and I've had help doing that. Um, and I think it just kind of depends on your skill set. I mean, for, for me, I'm stronger with my, range of passing than, for example, of dribbling. And I think players who are more dribbling number 10s will kind of end up out wide or, or, you know, further forward. And those who are um, more likely to pick a pass will kind of be a little more withdrawn. So it just kind of, you know, you have to, you have to assess what's going on, assess your game, your, your, your physique, everything, and just kind of understand what adjustments you need to make and, and where else you can play on the field. Beautiful. Harshal, any, any thoughts on, on the evolution and how, people are moving to these altered positions? Um, yeah, just sort of agree with what Dre is saying, you know, in terms of if you're looking at the top six, very different types of number 10s. Uh, Dele Ali, for example, another one at Spurs who's barely playing. Um, and that's, again, I think a function of the fact that Mourinho doesn't really have a number 10 in the system he plays. It's 
if he's playing a 4-3-3. So it's, and we spoke about this last time as well, it's just that the way the game has evolved, that, that you can't, you can't really have a passenger on the team in the sense in term, from a defensive point of view. So if you are playing a number 10, he needs to be able to contribute off the ball as well, which is what, for example, Fernandez does that a lot for United. He does sort of lead the press for United. And I think that's obviously that's not where his primary impact is. His primary impact is with the ball at his, at his feet, but you need to be able to do that. And with regard to Ozil, for example, um, he, he, he's always been characterized as a lazy player who didn't run around. And that's not entirely true. He did do his bit defensively in terms of positioning and cutting off passing lanes and all of that, but he's obviously not the most aggressive presser. And we saw at the weekend as well, you know, it was Villian, for example, who was playing more of a central role for uh, Arsenal. And he's, he was really helping the, the Arsenal press in terms of shutting down United. You saw Lacazette, I mean, he didn't really have an impact on the ball, but I thought off the ball, he did a fantastic job cutting off Fred, which is why United had to keep going to McTominay. So, I mean, that's just an example of how in central areas of the pitch, you can't really have someone who, uh, you know, isn't a, a, a good player defensively. And I think it just adds then the fact that you need to put, on, put in so much mental and physical effort on the defensive side of things leaves you... I mean, I wouldn't say exhausted, but then there's a lot less you can do when you do have the ball at, at your feet because you've expended a lot of mental and physical energy, you know, doing the defensive side of things. So that's why that traditional number 10 has died out. And it's a shame because some of those players, I mean, I grew up watching Zidane, for example. He's a classic number 10. But you're not going to get a player like Zidane, especially if this is how academies are also going to teach young kids to play that, I mean this is the role and this is these are the things you need to do off the ball and all of that. You're not going to get someone like Zidane or Juan Roman Riquelme, for example, another guy who played in La Liga, played for Barcelona, played in Argentina, sort of revered as number 10 in Argentina. So even Ozil, you know, Ozil is like that last sort of typical number 10 and he's not getting a game at Arsenal anytime soon because he's not on either squad. So it, that's just the way the game has evolved now. I think people, those guys are going to have to move out wide or play deeper, as Dre said, based on their skill set. Beautiful. Well, why don't we leave it there, gentlemen? Thank you so much. We are sponsored by the EPIL Prospectus, a 280-page guide created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers, Moneyball for Football, Analytics plus Opposition Analysis plus Eye Candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao. Ciao, ciao.